Turn, if you would, to the fourth chapter of the book of Romans. It's a hard act to follow. Last week, we did the last half of chapter 3, which is the pivotal part of the whole book of Romans. We had spent half of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, half of chapter 3, discussing the fact that we are without excuse. We are all sinners. We are not seeking after God. We are doing our own thing. We are not following the law. Even to the extent that we understand it, we're not following the law We are condemned. The truth of God should have been clear to us, but we in our rebellion suppressed the truth in our unrighteousness. We were doomed. It ended halfway through chapter 3 with, by the works of the law, no one will be justified before God. So last week's lesson was the solution a righteousness that is from Christ apart from the law, apart from anything that you and I can do, it is the righteousness of Christ that is given to us. That is the way we are saved. That is the gospel message. But Paul is writing this to a Jewish Gentile congregation and to a Jewish audience The first question that's going to be asked is, okay, but what about Abraham? Because if it doesn't work for Abraham, it doesn't work for anyone in the Jewish mind. And on the Gentile side, the question is kind of, okay, if it worked for Abraham and only for Abraham, how do we as Gentiles fit into the picture? How do we get in? Chapter 4 is going to deal with Abraham. The interesting thing that we're going to see is that while Romans chapter 4 uses Abraham as an illustration that justification is by faith alone, when James wants to talk about the necessity of works, he uses Abraham as his example. He said, Abraham was justified by his faith and his works, and they seem to contradict each other. So the fact that we have two authors writing things that appear to contradict each other, and they're using the same person as their example, causes some people to get confused. So that's what we're going to deal with today. What does it mean that Abraham was justified by faith. But before we do that, we need a quick history lesson. This is Genesis, okay? Chapter by chapter. This morning I tried to remember what was in chapter 24, and I'm not real sure. Oh, well. We know about Abraham, right? Abraham was called by God to leave Ur the Chaldees. His father was actually called, and he went, and then Abraham after him. You have to understand, this is a good, old-fashioned, pagan society. I mean, we're talking idolatry, we're talking good, old-fashioned pagans. 
And God comes and tells Abraham, come this way. In fact, come somewhere. I'm not going to tell you where you're going, but I'll tell you when you get there. You know, I don't know about you. I, I at least would consider myself open to the possibility if God told me to go to the mission field or something, I, I might do it. But I'd want to know where I was going. I'd want to know who was going to fund this operation. I'd want to know what was for dinner. I'd want to know who was making the travel arrangements. I'd want to know where I'm going to stay when I get there. And I want to know that there's a flush toilet. I mean, let's face it, right? God told Abraham to go, and he went. He left. And in chapter 12, he's called to leave his family. He takes Lot with him. Chapter 13, if you remember, Lot and his stuff got too big for Abraham and his stuff. And Abraham said, okay, here we are up on the mountain. You pick a side. I'll take the other side. And they did, and Lot picked the side close to Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, Not in Sodom and Gomorrah, just close to Sodom and Gomorrah. But by the time we get to uh, chapter 14, Lot is living in Sodom and Gomorrah. They, there's a big fight. They're captured. They're carried off. Abraham gets all of his guys, and they go rescue them. It's a whole interesting chapter with the whole thing with Melchizedek and all of that stuff and offering, offerings and sacrifices. But then chapter 15 is an interesting chapter. It says up there, God renews his covenant with Abram. And you do know his name is Abram to begin with, and later it's changed to Abraham. Okay? God tells Abraham, Abram, I'm going to bless you. All the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you. Your descendants are going to be like the... Sands, the stars, you name the metaphor, that's going to be it. And Abram says, you know, trust you, Lord, love you, Lord, but how in the world is that going to happen? When the heir of all of my stuff is my head servant, because I have no children. And God promises Abram, nope, it's going to be your descendant who is going to fulfill all these promises. Then Abram has Ishmael by Hagar. This is a beautiful, horrible picture of how we, we take what is the will of God and try to accomplish it through our own means. I need a descendant. Sarah's not producing any children. I'll go find another woman. Okay? And it was actually Sarah's idea. I mean, let's put this in the right perspective, right? <laughs> and so Ishmael is born, and uh, voila, Abraham has a descendant. Then in chapter 17, circumcision is instituted, and you have to understand, Abraham was real old, like older than any of you. <laughs> Don't think about this too long, okay? <laughs> He was circumcised, along with all of the male members of the household. This is interesting, because if you've remembered in chapter 
1 and 2 and 3, there's always been this distinction between the circumcised and the uncircumcised, the Jew and the non-Jew, because this sign was the symbol that you were in the right group, that you were in the covenant family, the sign of circumcision. So, verse 18, the three visitors show up and they renew the promise. Remember, Sarah laughs a little bit and they say, why is she laughing? Oh, I didn't laugh. Yes, you did. Liar, liar, pants on fire. <laughs> Loose translation of the book of Genesis. But the covenant is renewed. <sighs> then Sodom and Gomorrah de- destroyed Abraham and Abimelech. And finally, in chapter 1, Isaac, the child of the promise, is born. And then what happens? God tells Abraham, take your son, the one that you love, just to make sure he doesn't drag Ishmael out there, take Isaac and kill him, offer him as a sacrifice to me. Chapter 22, Abraham is told to sacrifice Isaac. You remember the story, we actually talked about this last week, that God provided an alternate sacrifice, which is the picture that we see of Jesus Christ as the God-provided sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sin. Next chapter, Sarah dies, and finally in chapter 25, Abraham dies. There's the whole life of Abraham in a nutshell. Why is this important? We're getting ahead of ourselves. Verse 4, I mean chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? He's talking to the Jewish community. In earthly terms, Abraham is our forefather. It's interesting, that word forefather. It's actually not necessarily a biological. It's just, you know, the person who came before us. And it's interesting because when we get to chapter 9, and we start getting into all kinds of trouble, we're going to have this discussion about the spiritual children of Abraham. That would be us who are Gentiles but are believers. For if Abraham was justified by works, that's the whole discussion here, right? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, if Abraham had done something that would justify him, then he might have something to brag about in front of other people. I can sit here and argue that there's some of you that I'm better than you are. I mean, let's just face it. There's got to be at least one person in this room that I'm better than you. And as soon as I find that person, I'm going to let that person know that I'm better than they are. Don't we do that all the time? We read the newspaper, we find people that are worse than us, and go, my, those people are horrible. Can you believe how good I am? And that's the way our brains work. So the implication is, is that if I were looking at other people, I might have something to brag about. But I wouldn't before God, because God has a perfect standard. And by that standard, I don't measure up. Don't even come close. 
So while we can sit around all day long and brag in front of each other, before God, we don't have a chance in the world. So, if Abraham is justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And here is the passage from Genesis chapter 15 that we alluded to earlier. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Elzer of Damascus? And Abraham said, you have given me... Abraham said, you have given me no children, so a servant of my household will be my heir. And here it comes. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and he, God, credited to him Abraham as righteousness. And that is the verse that is quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 4. What does it mean that he believed and it was credited to him as righteousness? This idea of crediting something is actually an accounting term. You've got your ledger sheet And you've got the things you owe, and you have the things you've earned, you have the things that go out and the things that come in, and you have a credit applied to your name that says righteous. God, in his big accounting book, is crediting righteousness to you. Why? Because you're righteous, because you're perfect, because you've done everything right. We kind of skipped over a lot of that stuff in the life of Abraham. You know, Sarah, lie to them and tell them you're my sister so they don't kill me. Sarah, I think I'll go have sex with Hagar. We kind of skipped over all that stuff, right? Abram was not perfect. He was a man of faith, but he was not perfect. So if the ledger sheet was based on his actions alone, he would have been in trouble. But because of his faith, because he believed what God told him was going to happen, was going to happen, God said, that's righteousness. That's what I'm looking for. I am not looking for perfection in you. I am providing perfection from me. Huh. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Later in the chapter, we're going to talk about exactly what that meant. Believing God. Very simply, it is this. God promised something, and Abraham said, I believe, I have an assurance that what God promised, God will do. God says, I'm going to have a kid, I'm going to have a kid. The fact that I'm 100 years old and Sarah is 90 years old, (gasps) I'm going to have a kid. 
You know, I started thinking about this. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't want to continually bring this up, but this is the oldest class in the church. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands who the oldest couple is in this class, the oldest couple in this class. But let's just say that this oldest couple in the class came in next Sunday and the wife said, I'm pregnant. Huh? We laughed just like Sarah did. I mean, she's not here so I can talk about her, but you know, my wife was a little embarrassed that she was pregnant the last time she was. And she was 40-something. Sarah's 90. You either laugh or you have faith that what God says he's going to do He's going to do. And God said, that faith, that's all I want. I'm going to write that in the ledger book. That is righteousness. Believing God to be true, even when everything around you says no, is faith. Now, we had a discussion last week about faith, so we won't go into a long discussion but remember, it's not just wishful thinking. I hope things turn out okay. No, it is a confidence in God that God will do what God says he will do. It's a perfectly rational, logical belief that an almighty God will accomplish what an almighty God promises he will do. So, keep reading. Now, to the one who works, verse 4, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. This is pretty simple, okay? I go to work, and I put in my hours, and at the end of the week, they give me a check. It's not a gift. It is wages. I earned it. Pretty simple, right? When I receive salvation, is it something that I earned or is it a gift? When it was given to Abraham, it was a gift. Every, eh, maybe I shouldn't use the word every, but I'll go ahead and do it. Every religion in the world is trying to construct a list that if I complete this list, I will A, be better than you, and B, earn my way to heaven, salvation, whatever you want to call it. I am going to be in the inner circle because I earned my way in. We'll see this in a couple of chapters. For the wages of sin is death. That's what you earned. But the gift of God is eternal life. That's what you get as a free will gift from God. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Huh. To the one who does not work, didn't Abraham work? More about that in just a moment. 
but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Justifies the ungodly. Do you remember a discussion we had about three weeks ago where I had the Sprite can and I put the wrapper around it and all of that? In Catholic theology, God justifies the godly. Now, what that means is that God, through his grace, and they do believe in grace, okay, God in his grace works in your life through the sacraments, etc. And at the end of your life, if you've done a good job, if you've fulfilled this process, then God declares you right before God. God declares you just because you are, in fact, just. You have achieved, through the grace of God, enough righteousness that God declares you to be righteous because you are, in fact, righteous. As I said during that study, if you ask a good Catholic who actually knows what they're talking about, are you saved, they will answer, I hope so. Because that's all they can answer. Well, what does this passage tell us? Who does God justify? Who does God declare to be just? The ungodly. While we were still in our sins... God looked at us and said, you, I am going to declare righteous. You, I am going to justify. And this was last week's lesson. Either God is going to pretend that we didn't sin, or the full penalty of that sin has to be met by someone else. And that someone else is Jesus Christ. When we receive the righteousness of Christ, we are, not, we are not pretending to have righteousness. We have a real righteousness that came, that comes from Jesus Christ. Now, we still have to work that out in our everyday life. And that is the process of sanctification. And we'll have a whole lot more to say about that when we get to chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15 with a little bit of chapter 6 thrown in. We receive his righteousness not when we are godly, but when we are ungodly. I mean, what, what, what is the first requirement to being saved? You've got to need to be saved. We've had this discussion before. One of the problems we have in our society today is that we have a large group of people who don't think they need to be saved. I'm just as good as you are. So what? I'm not the standard. God is the standard. As one uh, pastor that I heard uh, on a CD said, you know, when he was young, he said, in the United States, you could assume that people had some some idea of the concept of sin. Whether they were believers or unbelievers, they at least understood there is a God, I did something that violated what... So if you told somebody you're a sinner, they'd go, oh, okay. They might not do anything about it, but at least they'd understand it. He said, today you talk to them, and he's a pastor in New York City, he says, they just look at you dumbfounded. Either A, you've called them a dirty name because you've made them out to be a sinner, or B, it just, the concept doesn't mean anything. What law did I violate? 
In order to be justified, you have to be in need of justification. In order to be in need of justification, you have to be ungodly. I've got a quick answer to that. You all fit. Okay? We all are in need of a Savior. And to him who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, his faith is counted as righteousness. So I can sit here and go down one of two paths. Well, there's other paths, but we'll just deal with two. I can work my buns off to try to earn my way into heaven. And we've talked about that each of the last five weeks. You're not going to do it, in a nutshell. Or I can believe that what God says is true is true and have faith, and God will say, I'll take that. That's what I need from you. Just as David also spoke of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Taken from Psalm 32. You see, we had this discussion, was it last week or the week before? Paul didn't make all this stuff up, okay? We're told that the law and the prophets in last week's lesson point to all of this. All the pictures were already there in the Old Testament getting ready for Christ to be that final sacrifice so that we could be declared righteous. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. What's a lawless deed? It's a deed that breaks the law. What is the law? It is the written law that God gave the nation of Israel on the mountain. It is the law that he has written into our conscience, so we are all without excuse. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Huh. Not worked off. You know, if I go and spend a year in prison for, com- for committing this crime, I have paid the penalty for that sin. I am released. No. Why? Because in our sin against God, our lawless deeds, the penalty is so large that we cannot, cannot work it off. It has to be forgiven. It is interesting, you get into another discussion of Catholic theology dealing with the whole subject of purgatory. In Catholic theology, purgatory is where you work that off. Okay? Go do your 10 years for that sin, 20 years for that sin, ooh, 100 years for that sin. It doesn't matter. You just stack it up and you work it off. That's what purgatory is. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. The word covered uh, sometimes to us means, you know, just kind of hidden. But in reality, to a good Jewish audience that 
David would have been writing the psalm, they would have known what that meant. That meant that there was a blood sacrifice that covered, that took away that sin. The sin was paid for by a blood sacrifice. The blood sacrifice was the covering that provided salvation. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Let's see. Kyle sinned this yesterday and this and this and this. I can hide them from you. I really can. I'm actually pretty good at it. I'm not very good at hiding them from God. And I've got a word for you about that too. Neither are you. You may think you've gotten rid of everything. You've hidden it real well. Nobody will ever find out. God knows. God knows, but he does not count it against us. Why? Because there is a righteousness that is provided by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's why it's not counted against us. Question. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? That would be the Jewish community. Or also for the uncircumcised. But before we do that, let's address another question about James. Hmm. If you turned over to the book of James, and you can do that, in chapter 2, you're going to see this interesting verse. Verse 21, chapter 2 of the book of James. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? There it is, as clear as can be. My Church of Christ friend points out very clearly justification by faith alone is a heresy because this passage says wasn't he justified by his works James 2 verse 21 was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So not only does he use the same person, he uses the same passage to talk about Abraham being justified by works. But is he really using the same passage? It is interesting that when James... When James talks about works, he uses an instance in Abraham's life that's down here in chapter 22. When Paul was talking about it, he was using the passage up in what? Chapter 15. What's the difference? The difference is simply this. Which comes first? Huh. This is a hard question. Chapter 15, chapter 22, which comes first? Another accounting riddle. riddle. (laughs) I cannot tell you 
how much difficulty this has caused throughout church history. Ephesians tells us we are saved by faith, and that is not of yourselves, but it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Blah, blah, blah. And we are created to do good works. So there's no works that will save us, and then we are saved to do good works. James is dealing with a fallacy that says, if I tell you I have faith, I have faith. It's as simple as that. Oh, yeah, I believe. You could back up a little bit. You believe that God is one. Great, good for you. So does the devil. What James is dealing with is the difference between a dead faith that produces no fruit and a live faith that can be demonstrated by works. But the faith is not brought about by the works. It is the consequence of the faith. The faith brings works. The works don't bring faith. And that is the difference between these two passages. Before Abraham offered his son up by faith, before there was circumcision, before all of that happened, all that Abraham had done was have faith. And God says, I'll take that. But was he just pulling our leg? Was he just making up stories? Was he just pretending? How do we know that he really had faith? And James says, I'll tell you. He took his son, the son that he loved, and he put him on a slab and he was ready to kill him. I'm sorry. I'm not sure I have that much faith. Well, on certain days. Yeah. But it has nothing to do with my faith. It has to, anyway, that's a whole different story. A dead faith, according to the book of James, is a faith that produces nothing. He throws in the illustration, you know, somebody comes to you and says, I'm hungry, please feed me. And you go, oh, yeah, I'll pray for you. When you've got money in your pocket, that's not demonstrating live, living faith. That's simply blowing him off. Abraham is the example in Romans of justification by faith alone. James uses Abraham to discuss the fact that it is not a faith that is alone, but as a faith that produces good works, that demonstrate, that do not produce, but that demonstrate the faith that is already present. So, back to... Romans. What would you say that is faith and works? Faith and works. 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 Faith and works
it's demonstrated in works. It is not a faith in works because our faith is in Jesus Christ. That was the discussion last week. You know, the important thing is not my feelings or it is the object of that faith, which is Jesus Christ. So if we had faith in our works, we're holding out that we've done enough to to earn our way in. And that's not going to work. But the faith that we have in Jesus Christ will produce fruit. You know, the illustration that I use in my head is, you know, um, back to Ephesians. We are dead in our trespasses and sin, and we are made alive. You know, I'm not a medical doctor. I have two daughters who are nurses, so I hear all kinds of medical stories, okay? But I have this suspicion that if you're alive, there's certain indicators, okay? If you bring a corpse in here and say they're alive... And they have no brain function, no breathing, no this, no that, no that. I don't think I have to be a doctor to say, no, they're not. If I have a faith that is a corpse that has no indication of life, as I've said repeatedly in this class, I I can't judge another person's salvation, but on the authority of the Word of God, I can say certain things are red flags. You know, if, if, if that's what you got, you know, you start looking at the fruit of the spirit. What is fruit? Fruit is the growing out. That's what grows out of the life. If there is no indication, I'm not even after perfection, right? But if there's no indication, it's a red flag. If there are no outputs, if there is no work, coming out of your faith. But that's the problem. I know how we think. Okay? We talk about this, and some of you want to run away and say, ah, I've got to work harder to prove that I'm saved. No. No. You're saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ and that alone. That's it. That is it. But if God's spirit is living in you, there will be indications to the outside world. As I said, in some people's lives it's huge, in some people's lives it's small. I don't care. Okay? Whatever that manifestation is in your life, there better be a pulse or you're just a dead body. So, Blessed are those, back to chapter 4, whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Okay, so the Jewish half of the congregation is convinced. Okay, Abraham got it. He was justified by faith because he believed when God said, I'm going to do certain things. We are off the hook. And the Gentile side goes, okay, does that mean since they're in Abraham, they're okay, but we're not? Is it a matter of being circumcised or uncircumcised? And remember, when we're talking about these phrases, we're talking about the people who consider themselves in versus those who know they are out of the Abrahamic covenant. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? 
And this is where I got ahead of myself. Notice, in chapter 15 of Genesis, God declared Abram righteous. It's another one of those trick questions. In chapter 17, circumcision was instituted. Are you ready for this? Which comes first, 15 or 17? Was he declared righteous after he was circumcised? Or was he declared righteous before and the circumcision was simply the sign of what happened? Back to my Church of Christ friend. I am not a believer in his eyes because I do not believe that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Now, do I think you ought to be baptized? Of course. And in fact, if you refuse to be baptized, that's another one of those red flags that goes up and says, there's a little bit of rebellion here. You're not ready for this. But the baptism doesn't save you. The baptism is simply a sign of what God has worked out in your life. So, Paul asked the rhetorical question, is this just for the circumcised? What about the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How was it counted to him? Was it before? Here's that trick question. Yes, Jerry. Any other folks other than who? Well, I don't want to name a particular thing. Why, well, I do, so go ahead. <laughs> I mean, is these people? I mean, if you were in a certain religion, mm-hmm. you would know the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how far off are we talking here? Give me a hint. <laughs> well, I, I remember a Catholics, Mormons, <laughs> Baptists. <laughs> If you look at our church doctrinal statement, okay, you ought, in fact, you ought to do that. We've actually taught through it in here before. There are, I don't know, whatever it is, six or seven pages of what we believe is a church, okay? And it's very specific and it's right, okay? <laughs> but then if you look back into what it takes to be a member of this church, you don't have to believe all that stuff. You have to believe that you are a sinner. You have to believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins. And you have to have faith and accept that Jesus Christ died for your sins. That's the minimum. So you can join this church and not believe all that. Now, should you believe all that? Yeah, probably, but that's neither here nor there. There is a minimum. And it's interesting, and I don't want to talk about him too much, but my Church of Christ friend, who and I had a two-hour discussion in the airport about this. It's like I told him. I said, I'm willing to put you inside the circle of believers. He's very sincere. He's very, very committed to his faith. And I said, but you're not willing to put me inside your circle. And he knows it. 
He knows that. I mean, he, he acknowledges that. And like I said, he's the nicest guy in the world. And sometimes we are like the Jewish community and communities in general that we begin to think that if you're not in my circle, you're wrong. Well, you can be wrong and still be in God's circle. We're actually going to have a long discussion about this when we get to chapter 13, okay? But the reality is, the reality is, if you believe that you are a sinner in need of salvation, if you believe that Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for that sin, if you in faith accept that he has done that for you, acknowledging your sin and asking for forgiveness, the scripture says you will be saved. Now, will you understand all the ins and outs of theology when you do that? No. Throughout your life, should you learn the scripture and learn theology and learn all that? Yes, you should. We should grow in our knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ and of his word and of what it means to be a believer. That's the process of sanctification. Do we all grow at the same speed? No. Do we all necessarily grow in the same direction? No. I would like to think we all don't violate the word of God. Okay, I'd like to believe that. But you know, some of us are stubborn and some of us need more help than others. That's me. And the question is, do we believe that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins? And when God dealt with Abram, Abraham, that's what he was looking for. The question is, what about repentance? Okay? And the discussion is, is repentance a work that has to be done before you are saved, and what does it mean to repent? Repent itself means simply a turning away. I'm going this direction, and I turn and go the other direction. And there are some people who want to make that into a work, and as such, and if you read the doctrinal statement of our church, it'll say repentance is not, not a work that is necessary to be saved. And that's actually a controversial sentence because there are passages that say, repent. I mean, it does. You know, didn't John the Baptist say, repent, the kingdom of... We're supposed to repent. But once again, the question is, what comes first? What would cause me to repent? Understanding who God is, accepting my sin, and acknowledging him and becoming a believer, and then it's like, oh my gosh, I'm going the wrong way. I'm going to turn. So in one sense, it's could be a question of semantics. You know, it's like, which millisecond before, is it the millisecond before I become a believer that I repent, or the millisecond after I become a believer that I repent? But the problem is, is we find an unbeliever, and we want them to repent, and as soon as they repent, then we'll offer them salvation. Well, they're never going to repent until they're because they're never really going to understand the gravity of their sin. So it is, a, it is an interesting controversy. I mean, and once again, part of it is just semantics of, you know, which comes immediately preceding the other. 
But part of it is, can I force you to feel bad enough about your sin that you will earn your way into heaven by the magnitude of your bad feelings? And that's what some people view repentance to be. Repentance is a response to the God spirit working in your life saying, you're going the wrong way, and you go, and I turn and go the other direction. So anyway, that's the, that's the controversy over that passage. It is not a work. It is a result of the work of God in your life. That's my understanding of it. We're out of time, and we have another hand up in the air. Go ahead. I know. Her question is this. I made the comment that I am willing to put my Church of Christ friend in the circle. And if my Church of Christ friend is trusting for some of his salvation on the work of baptism, how can he really be in the circle? Okay? And I'm being kind. (laughs) I am willing to put certain Catholics in the circle. Even though I know Catholic theology is wrong because by the fruit in their lives I see the work of God in their lives. So the problem comes that if I start looking at people by the stated theology that they claim to follow, some of them I'm going to say, nope, that's not going to do it. But when I see the evidence of the fruit, I go, eh, now, this is a huge controversy, and I'm going to try to get out of it because we're two minutes over. (laughs) But I would not put Mormons in the circle because their theology is too messed up. Now, do I know Mormons who are great people and who do great, wonderful things? Sure. They love their families. They love their kids. They are honest, hardworking, rah, rah but their theology is too messed up. So we actually will deal with this in chapter 13. But suffice it to say that I don't believe you have to be a member of Christ Chapel Bible Church to be in. I don't think you have to be a member of a Bible church to be in. I don't think you have to agree with me on every shred of theology to be in. At some point, I'm going to trust in God to take care of all of that. Now, does that mean I don't believe what we believe? No, I do believe what we believe. It's just God works in mysterious ways. So it's a great question. I mean, it's a really good question that I struggle with all the time. But that's where I am right now, that I have to accept, yeah, this person belongs to a church that believes some things that I would disagree with, but I still see the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their lives. So I'll put the circle. Now, ultimately, and here's the important thing, ultimately it doesn't matter a flip where I put the circle. Okay? It doesn't matter a flip. The question is, are they doing what God has asked them to do?
<laughs> so I'll keep, I'll keep arguing with him, and he'll keep arguing with me, and that'll go on forever, okay? In the same way that my good Catholic friend and I have argued theology for 30 years, and I have explained Catholic theology to him for years, Okay? We didn't make it through the lesson. What's new? What's the conclusion? Abraham is an example of one who was justified by faith. Circumcision was the sign or seal of Abraham's faith, not the cause of it. Abraham is our father if we too walk by faith. But remember, a live faith is a faith that works. That is the book of James. Yes, Harold. Well, I, it, it all goes back to that verse right there in chapter 1, verse 17, is the verse that he wrestled with. Chapter 4, chapter 3 last week and chapter 4 today is what really was the example that, that drove him to understand. So we will continue chapter 4 next week. <sighs> what does it all mean? To repeat myself one more time, there is a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Abraham did not earn his way in. Billy Graham did not earn their way in. Ted Kitchens did not earn his way in. And if we're in, it's not because we earned our way in. It is because we believed in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the salvation that you have provided for us. I pray, Lord, that we would walk in faith and, like Abraham, demonstrate our faith by actions in our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.